Welcome back, everyone. If you're back and you can uh, put your video on, that's helpful. I love to be able to uh, see people as I'm uh, as I'm talking to everyone. So if that works for you uh, to have your video on. So again, good to see everyone. October, who would have thought? It is October. Today's talk is not about impermanence and change, uh, but it's on a related topic. Um, I want to continue with what I explored, what we explored the last three times I was here, which was looking into the nature of dukkha, and I interpreted the main meaning, the most important meaning of dukkha as reactivity. And we looked at that over several sessions. And today, I want to be very practical and look at um, 10 ways of practicing with reactivity. That's going to be what I'll explore today. I'll, I'll give 10 basic ways of practicing with reactivity. I'll give a little bit of an introduction and very brief re review of what we've already covered to give some of the background for the practice. And I, I prepared a handout, so to speak, um, that lists these 10. And we're going to uh, post that right when my talk finishes. Carlita made a PDF file out of it. And she's going to put that into the chat where you can get it. I'm also going to, when I upload the talk to Dharma Seed, uh, I will also upload the uh, PDF file. So that'll be available uh, to as a really as a support for practice. <clears throat> and I, I also want to acknowledge that um, today is um, Yom Kippur in the uh, Jewish tradition. And it's actually for many the holiest day of the year. If I was more holy in a Jewish way, I wouldn't be teaching today. <laughs> so, uh, but here I am. And But it, it's uh, often taken to be the most sacred day of the year. It's sometimes said that the veils between ourselves and seeing the divine are way thinned out on Yom Kippur. And actually, I, it's a significant day for me because my father died on Yom Kippur you know, a number of years ago. So it was, you know, it was um, interesting that that was the day for, for him. And it's also uh, a day where the main theme is very much related to what we'll be exploring uh, in the talk and discussion in terms of working with reactivity, because as many of you know, a main theme of Yom Kippur is acknowledging where we, the phrase is often, where we have fallen short, where we want to maybe make amends, where we have fallen short, and we use the day to align ourselves with our deeper intentions. Let me orient in the next period of time with my deeper intentions. And that's very related to 
practicing with reactivity. You know, where we acknowledge uh, reactivity is in many ways where we are on automatic, not conscious, not so aware, not wise, not in our good hearts. And we acknowledge all of those, but we say, I can still orient, even though I acknowledge that, I orient towards what is uh, good, what is connected with love and wisdom and um, skillful action. So I think, I think the, you know, having that backdrop of uh, Yom Kippur is something we can, uh, we can, we can refer to. So in the, in the sessions um, that I've given, I'll be very brief here, we explored the nature of what's called by the Buddha Dukkha and translated usually as suffering. And I analyzed something that's often not very clear is that this whole term can be confusing and it really is related to the question of what are we doing with this practice? You know, sometimes you hear the phrase, we will come to the end of suffering. Anyone sign up for that? It sounds pretty good. <laughs> but, but what does it really mean? What does it mean? You know, and I, I think it's challenging because in English, there is ambiguity with a word like uh, suffering. It's not really clear whether it's different or the same as pain or being with what's painful, unpleasant, difficult. And that really never ends with human life. You know, I've mentioned sometimes that the Buddha, when he was older especially, had headaches and backaches, right? That, those were painful. The Buddha presumably came to full awakening but he didn't come to the end of pain. And so I, I analyzed, uh, particularly uh, several sessions ago, how in the actual discourses of the Buddha, there are at least four different meanings to the word dukkha. And the Buddha says that the main aim of my practice is to come to the end of dukkha. Again, dukkha usually translated as suffering, but I prefer reactivity as the translation of what I'll give, you know, what I take to be the fourth meaning. The first core meaning is that of the unpleasant. You find that that's the, probably the predominant meaning in the text. Dukkha is the end of, uh, Dukkha is, is um, the unpleasant. But if we ask, does that end? What does the end of Dukkha mean? Well, as I mentioned earlier, that doesn't end. So our, the aim of our practice is not to come to the end of the unpleasant. Although, through our being skillful, we might have uh, much less of unpleasant through not having so much of sort of the self-inflicted pain, right? That, that's, that's true. And then there are two other meanings of dukkha that are given in the text. One of them is that it's, uh, it's dukkha because what is pleasant will eventually turn to what is unpleasant. It's called the dukkha of alternation because of impermanence. Again, but that never ends. That's just the way things are. Similarly, another sense of dukkha is that um, 
nothing of a conditioned nature can bring lasting satisfaction, and that's said to be dukkha. But again, that never ends. That's just the way things are. And so I had to go to really two other teachings which bring out a sense of uh, this primary meaning of dukkha as reactivity, and that is something that we can aspire to end, and presumably that the Buddha was free of. And I'll, I'll have to say in more detail what reactivity means. It's not the same in English. We sometimes say, you know, I reacted to that. Reactivity has the qualities of being compulsive, habitual, relatively unconscious, and automatic. And I'll give some examples in a few moments. This comes out in two core teachings, which I went into detail on in previous talks. And if you go back to the Dharma Seed posting of the talk, I had some handouts which help explicate those teachings. The first is called the teaching of the two arrows. This is the teaching that Buddha says, at times we have unpleasant experiences. This is like being shot by an arrow. He said, what distinguishes a skilled practitioner from an unskilled practitioner or a non-practitioner. And he said that it's not in terms of the first arrow. It doesn't relate to the first arrow. At times, we are shot by the first arrow. I have unpleasant physical experiences, emotional experiences, interpersonal experiences at times. Everyone's the same at that. Where the difference is, is that people who are non-practitioners or times when we are unskillful, we will at times shoot a second arrow at ourselves and others as if that would help. And so I have physical pain and I tighten around it. I have, I may have chronic, you know, kind of reactions to the physical pain. I mentioned how very important interventions for those who have many kinds of chronic pain is to teach people to not be so reactive to the physical pain, learn to relax so we don't shoot the second arrow of that tightening. I mentioned how as much as, in some studies, as much as 80% of what people experience in some forms of chronic pain is the reactivity. So if you can minimize that. I, I talked with one of my students who works regularly with people with chronic pain, and she said that, yeah, that's one of the main things we teach people. You know, we can teach people mindfulness, how to be less reactive, so we eliminate as much of that 80% as possible. And, you know, other familiar forms of shooting the second arrow would be something difficult happens to me in relation to another person, I blame myself, I blame the other person, I get really judgmental, I have a grudge for two years, that's shooting the second arrow. You know, most, many, many conflicts, interpersonally or between nations, are people shooting the second arrow at each other, right? Be, you know, and again, it's very familiar in a close relationship. Many of our most dysfunctional patterns are when we get in a kind of a, a cycle where we each shoot the second arrow at each other and we just repeat that, right? You know, I didn't like something, I get reactive towards the person, I shoot a second arrow, the second the other person gets reactive at what I said or did, shoots the second arrow right back at me, and we're in a loop, right? That's, 
you know, that's shooting the second arrow. For how many people is that a sometimes a familiar dynamic in relationships? Anyone? Yeah. So, so we we can see that, and so the the point of that teaching is to recognize when we're shooting the second arrow, and learn not to not to shoot it, and. I think the meaning of that is brought out in a second teaching, the meaning brought out a little further, the teaching of dependent origination, in which it said this is related to the guided meditation. It said that when I have a when I have, let's say, an unpleasant experience, like in the teaching of the second arrow, if I'm not uh, mindful and wise, the unpleasant experience will lead to me not wanting it to be there, and then in some way reactively pushing it away. Again, the example with unpleasant body sensations, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant interaction. I'm reactive in all sorts of ways. And that's, um, you know, that, and sometimes it's just something difficult happens, unpleasant happens, and it's like, bam, bam, I go right into my reactivity. I think we all, we all know that at times, right? And so that's the teaching of dependent origination. The other side of that is when there's something pleasant and I'm not mindful and not wise, I'll kind of do the counterpart of shooting the second arrow. Instead of pushing away the unpleasant, I will grasp after the pleasant. We can see this, you know, probably commonly with food or with um, other things that are very pleasant for us. And I'm, I'm saying, that the deep meaning of dukkha and what we, uh, the meaning of dukkha that helps us make sense of the Buddha saying, right, the center of all our practice is the end of dukkha. That meaning is that of reactivity, which has two forms, pushing away the unpleasant in all sorts of ways and grabbing hold of the pleasant. So those are the two core teachings. And I'll I'll take the rest of the time and have those as backdrop and talk about 10 ways of practicing with reactivity, okay? So the first one is really to remember the teachings. And again, I'll give, we'll have the, uh, the summary, the 10 points will be in the chat at the end, you know, right after my talk. So you can get that, take it home, and I'll also post it at the Dharma website. So my invitation would just be to listen. You'll get a, a summary statement of it. So the first is to work with the wisdom teachings, particularly those two teachings I just mentioned, the two arrows and the that part of the teaching of dependent origination, which goes basically from, uh, especially from pleasant to grasping and unpleasant to pushing away. Remember those teachings. Study them. You know, they're pretty simple. They're pretty basic. Uh, but we can apply them in our own lives. You know, I, I've mentioned that, um, you know, with people I work with, one of my most common, perhaps my most common guidance is, you've had something difficult happen, something painful happen. Watch out for your shooting of the second arrow. Right? That goes such a long way. Right? I had a difficult interaction. It would be somewhat predictable that I would shoot the second arrow, that I would be reactive. Okay. 
And I, I want to bring in here a complexity that I've mentioned the last few times that I mentioned in the guided meditation briefly, which is that the core distinction is between reactivity and a skillful, wise response. That's the core distinction. We're not simply saying whatever, you know, something difficult happened with another person. Yeah, just whatever, let it go, just be aware. Um, but it's rather, can I have a skillful response rather than reactivity? So, you know, two examples, um, you know, I've had, let's say, um, someone, you know, the examples I gave in previous weeks, maybe, maybe are simple so I can give them, you know, someone uh, maybe at work didn't keep an agreement. Now, I want to have a skillful response to that situation. I can also notice how I can get really reactive about the fact of the person not keep, like my coworker not keeping the agreement. So this isn't about just letting it go. And it's not about saying what was unpleasant, uh, I'll just be with it. So sometimes we want to respond to what was difficult or unpleasant, but we want to have a non-reactive response. And sometimes I use the language that we want to move from being reactive to being responsive. That's the, that's the center of all of our practice, I would say. Move from being reactive to being responsive. The other example would be something like injustice, right? I notice injustice, and I must say I'm an activist. I can get really reactive, and it often happens, about the injustice, right? And, you know, I, I've done a lot of work with activists. The core training is to develop a skillful response rather than being really reactive on the understanding that if I'm shooting the second arrow, even if I'm very accurate about noticing something that's not right, that it's not likely going to be so skillful, right? And that's a big issue for activists, as, as we know, or for, for any, any of us who are trying to respond to something that's not, not a right situation. So I wanted to just note that complexity. And it's, so it's, this, this is not at all about some kind of, you know, being nicey-nice or some meditative spiritual bypassing of difficult or painful experiences or, you know, not responding to what needs a response. But it's that um, difference between reactivity and a skillful response. That's the, that's the core of it. So that first, um, the first way of working practically, use the wisdom teachings to guide us. You know, and particularly can be noticing, did I just shoot the second arrow? Am I going to, you know, watch out for shooting the second arrow? Or, or some, you know, some application. I'll come back to some of that. The second guideline for working with reactivity is to assess the level of intensity of the reactivity. And we can bring our practices into the situation when the reactivity is in the workable range. You know, and I, I, I use, as I mentioned the last few times, a scale like that of the Olympic diver is one to 10. And, you know, we want to assess, is my reactivity 
at a level six, well, then it's kind of workable. I can be mindful of it. Is it a nine or a 10? Probably not so workable. I probably can't be mindful. It's probably kind of really uh, taking my nervous system away and telling my nervous system there's a crisis, right? Then I need to do things which bring me back to balance. So that's really important for working with reactivity because we can't really necessarily be mindful when the intensity level is too high. You know, and, and I think teachers have learned a lot about that, particularly in bringing, connecting mindfulness practice with working with trauma. Because for a lot of years, teachers just said, be mindful of it. And that's not skillful guidance if, if someone's going through traumatic activation. Right? So we could say a lot more about that. And some of you know there's a, a very good book by David Trelevin called My, what, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, which goes into this in a lot more depth if you're interested. So that's the second guideline. Assess the level of reactivity. If you're out of, if it's at very high level of reactivity, don't try to be mindful or maybe even, you know, use some of the other tools, I'll say, but do what brings you back to balance. It could be, you know, doing, taking a walk. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things one can do at the level of the nervous system, you know, uh, practices with the vagus nerve. If there's traumatic activation, then generally bringing one's attention to something that's really, really pleasing can be helpful. Open one's eyes, um, talk to friends, all sorts of things. But it's good to have your own personal one or two or three ways of coming back to balance if the reactivity level is high, is high. you know, and, and, you know, and bring those to mind, you know, could be some of what I've mentioned. The third way of practicing, again, we've mentioned it, is being mindful when there is reactivity. So it's to have, and again, in the guided meditation, we set our radar, so to speak, to notice reactivity. And how many people noticed some reactivity during the meditation? Yeah. It wasn't necessarily going to happen. And sometimes, you know, I give guided meditation where I, uh, you know, I deliberately ask you to go to something where you're reactive. And that's another way of working with it. You know, bring up yourself something where there's, re you know, has been reactivity in the past, maybe level five or six or seven. Bring it to mind and then just study what's going on. So we want to really be mindful when there's reactivity. And, you know, that has different dimensions. One of it, one of the dimensions is getting really familiar with our top five or top 10 situations which bring about reactivity. Write them down. Be aware when you're going into the situation, be aware that reactivity is likely. I was, I was thinking in getting ready for the talk, what were some of mine? I was thinking of you know, um, I like to go, I go swimming. We have a great local pool system where I live and they have a machine in the locker room for drying swimsuits. Anyone have those in your own pool? Anyway, it makes a horrend, in my mind, it makes a horrendous noise. Can you sense some reactivity? <laughs> right? It makes a horrendous noise. And I noticed that I was a little reactive. Oh, I don't like that machine because it's very, very loud. It's kind of grating. I could use some other adjectives that would, you know, indicate reactivity, right? And I, 
you know, I, I've been noticing that and just said, okay, okay, Donald, when that comes up, study it. What's going on? Can you just, you know, and we'll see later, uh, actually the, the fourth one, maybe it's related, maybe I should give that, the fourth way of practicing is to just hang out with the pleasant and the unpleasant. So Donald, can you hang out with that grating sound of the swimsuit dryer, right? And just hang out and watch the tendency, just as we did in the guided meditation, and as would be predictable from the teaching about, about that movement from the pleasant to uh, the grasping or the unpleasant to the pushing away. Can I be with that sound, the, what I was calling a grating sound, and just notice how it is to be unpleasant? Because if we can stay with the unpleasant, we can notice tendencies to reactivity. And sometimes we can just be with the unpleasant and notice, actually, I'm hanging out with the unpleasant and there isn't any reactivity. So we can see that reactivity is a little bit of like a defense mechanism so we don't have to experience the unpleasant. Right? Interesting. I mean, it, it is in many ways. That's how I've kind of analyzed another form of reactivity that's very common, which, which I teach on a lot, is what I call the judgmental mind, being, you know, blaming, judging, and so forth. Very, very common, of course. And that is a kind of reactivity. And typically, it actually uh, is usually covering over something unpleasant. You know, I think I, I've often given the example of, you know, a situation a while ago when I was working with a boss who I thought didn't listen to me. Do you remember that story that I've given sometimes? And I would, you know, um, he would, I would say something, he would, you know, change the subject. I would feel, quote unquote, not heard. I would become reactive. And um, beneath it was the pain of not feeling heard, right? And when I actually worked with the judgment, I could sometimes go back to that unpleasant experience. And when I really tuned in there, and this is what I did when I had in future meetings, oh, that didn't feel good. And if I really felt the unpleasantness of that in the moment, the reactivity wouldn't happen in the same way. And so it's very interesting. So the third, again, the third way of practicing, really study the ways that we're reactive. Notice what they are. Have a list of them. Be mindful in the moment when there is reactivity occurring. You know, and, um, and again, one can sometimes deliberately bring it up or just notice it in the moment really helpful during the day to take a pause, uh, we, we, not just to do this in meditation, but during the day you notice yourself significantly reactive. Say to yourself, I am being reactive. Take a pause, see what the level of intensity is. If it's in the workable range, just pause and be mindful. Also very, very skillful in terms of not... Um, letting the reactivity lead to saying something or doing something, you know. Um, very good guidance for, for emails or text messages. You know, if you find yourself really reactive and you start writing an email or doing a text, um, pause is very, very helpful. <laughs> Anyone, how many people have sent emails that you instantly regretted, <laughs> right? 
So something like that, right? So that's uh, so the the pause and the mindfulness are not just good practice, but they're they're protective, right? Mindfulness is often seen by the Buddhists being protective. So the fourth is then that being with hanging out with the unpleasant when it's there, or the pleasant. We can do this in meditation or do it just during the day. You know, uh, you know, you're eating. Uh, a very nice piece of chocolate cake, and you notice grasping after a second piece or a third piece, well, hang out with the pleasant, with the chocolate cake, right? And notice tendencies to grasp, because one of the interesting things about grasping sometimes for food or other things where there's something pleasant, we actually don't enjoy the pleasant, right? Anyone think of a situation where you were grasping after food? We actually are, we're, we're just almost in the future. We're not actually enjoying the pleasant. It's interesting, isn't it? Right? And, and so uh, the, the practice guidance would be enjoy the pleasant and watch the tendencies for grasping and reactivity. The fifth is, the fifth way of practicing is bring in loving kindness and other heart practices and do them regularly. When we're going into reactivity, to a large extent, we're going into things which are not our most beautiful parts of ourselves. We're going into some of our habits, some of them we might call, you know, habits that we want to change, right? And so we're going into things which can be difficult or unpleasant, and we want to hang out to a certain extent with wonderful qualities as well. So just hanging out with loving kindness or compassion Forgiveness can be very important because it gives us a little more balance as we're spending more time looking into what's difficult. It can be really crucial. They also, the heart practices also are valuable sometimes as what we call antidotes. That sometimes when um, reactivity occurs, we can go to loving kindness and it can sort of short circuit the reactivity. That can happen sometimes, and so we can, we can, uh, we you know. So a regular practice of something like loving kindness, I think, is really important when we're working with reactivity, and it also gives us a taste of our of our beautiful nature more and more. So we don't, you know, we don't think, uh, oh, the reactivity. I'm just a really reactive person, and we start judging ourselves when we hang out with. The heart practices, we realize, you know, I'm a very beautiful being who has some tendencies to reactivity, something like that, right? Which is uh, is helpful because we, again, when we're looking at the difficult parts of ourselves, we can we can get a little bit out of balance. How many have sometimes experienced that when you look to, you know, parts of yourself which you're not entirely happy about? Sometimes we can lose perspective and and get hard on ourselves. We want to watch out for that. So, uh, number, let's see, where am I? Number, number six. Um, this is going over some similar territory. In reactivity, we shoot the second arrow. We learn not to shoot the second arrow. So, when reactivity is occurring, we can watch that tendency, um, or maybe when the unpleasant or the pleasant is occurring, especially the unpleasant, we can notice that tendency to not shoot the second arrow or to shoot the second arrow 
and learn ways not to shoot it. Sometimes, again, we can just give ourselves guidance. You know, I'm having some a painful experience. Let me watch out for my tendencies to shoot the second arrow. You know, I can notice reactivity starting. I can notice, for, my, for example, really judging harshly myself or someone else. And I can say, I'm shooting the second arrow. And I can, I can say, I'm not going there. You know? And sometimes, when, especially when we know that habit well, simply by, we can simply say that, I'm not going there. How many people have sometimes been able to do that, where we just notice a tendency happening and we just tell ourselves, I'm not going there, you know, and um, sometimes it's helpful to have a friend who you can talk with or consult with, you know, so we learn alternatives. Sometimes we hang out with the unpleasant, you know, we can do a lot of different things. The seventh, um, the seventh, uh, way of practicing is, is related to what I was saying about loving kindness. It's that when we're in reactivity, we're not in our hearts, you know, that uh, the heart is sort of cut off. The kind heart is, is cut off from ourselves when there's reactivity. So another way of working with it is to deliberately go into uh, the kind heart, connect with the heart. You know, one way of doing this might be... Um, I'm having a difficult time with this person. I'm noticing myself reactive with this person. Let me bring in compassion for this person. Or let me bring in empathy deliberately. You know, empathy and compassion will short circuit the reactivity. You know, not easy to do this, but we can go in that intention. You know, and, and sometimes it takes some time. I had this really difficult interaction with my coworker or my friend at the right moment, can I try to, you know, maybe I do this on my own, can I try to see what I, my sense is of the other person's experience? What was the other person feeling? What, what mattered for the other person? You know, not excusing what the other person did, but can I try to see it from the other person's perspective? That will tend to um, short circuit the reactivity. Same thing if we do compassion. Again, it's not to let the other person off the hook if they did something not wise, not ethical, not skillful, but it's to help us to um, be able to respond without the reactivity. So if we can actually be in our hearts, reactivity is much less likely to happen. And again, we can maybe more easily say, oh, what would be a balanced or responsive way of addressing the issue that came up. Number eight, so I'm getting towards the end. Number eight, in reactivity, we are on automatic. We are compulsively driven. We are habitual, relatively unconscious, not mindful. What we can do is we can bring in Awareness. I notice I'm reactive. I'm reactive, and I can particularly bring in intentionality. I can say I'm being reactive. What would be a wise response right now? Let me have a wise intention. So this is particularly the value of intentions when there's reactivity. And intentions 
You know, so I'm noticing I'm really reactive towards this person. And I stop, I pause, and I say, how do I want to proceed now? I'm reactive. And I say, let's just take a walk, you know, and have a pause. You know, come back to my body. That could be a response. Or it could be to, you know, bring in a little loving kindness or empathy practice. Or it could be to say, um, you know, um, I'm just going to sit in meditation for 10 minutes, take a pause. So, or it could be to say, you know, maybe before a meeting where I've had reactivity with someone in the past, I'm going to try to, um, if I notice myself reactive, I'm going to try to take a pause. And I'm going to try not to actually speak when I'm reactive. Could be that. So this eighth way of practicing is to work with intentions. You know, could be all sorts of intentions, but to find ways of um, bringing intentionality in. Okay, the, the ninth and the tenth are going into large areas, and I'll, I'll recognize that, but I'll give, I'll give these ninth and tenth guidelines. The ninth guideline is that reactivity is ultimately driven by a kind of ignorance and lack of mindfulness. And a lot of the roots of our being on automatic are, we might say, hidden. They're in our unconscious territory. And this makes things tricky. You know, how many people have noticed over, you know, maybe sometimes of working with patterns of reactivity that it comes out of roots that you weren't even aware of, maybe something from childhood or something, just some pattern. How many people have explored that territory some, right? So we know that, that um, some of our forms of reactivity are driven by almost like uh, things that are beneath the surface, right? Whether it's just habits like the ones we've gone into about, uh, you know, grasping after the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant habits of ways that I'm judgmental, but it also can be on the basis of what I and some other people call limiting beliefs, which can be often beneath the surface. You know, can be so, for example, I can, I can have a limiting belief which developed when I was a kid. I need to be perfect for me to get love. A kind of perfectionism, which is very, very common. How many people have some kind of perfectionism? Yeah, so we can notice that a lot of that is beneath the surface, right? It kind of started, we kind of took something in maybe from our parents or sometimes from the culture. And I had, and then I, something happens where I'm not perfect. And I just maybe go instantly into reactivity and judging myself harshly, right? Something, how many people know patterns like that? Now, partly I'm asking for these raising of hands just to see that this is very widespread and quite unquote normal because one of the problems with uh, certainly being judgmental of ourselves is that we think that we are uniquely a problem or that I uniquely have this problem. So I like to show hands because we have, we have very common patterns, very important. And so, you know, we can look into the perfectionism and I can learn, and this can take some time, and there are many, many forms of what I'm calling limiting beliefs. There can be a limiting belief, for example, that, uh, you know, 
some part of me is not okay. You know, I'm not smart enough, or I'm not good looking enough, or I'm not this or that enough, right? And that can be something that's kind of beneath the surface, and we have a certain experience, and it, it just gets triggered, right? We have reactivity come up. It can come out of trauma. It can come out of painful experiences. And, you know, those can be relatively unconscious, but they still lead to me in certain situations being, you know, being reactive, you know, or, you know, one that I've worked with a lot is I don't really belong, right? You know, from kind of, you know, there are different roots of it, but, you know, something that, kind of had issues of belonging. Do I really belong? And sometimes a situation will come up, and if I have that limiting belief and it's not, hasn't been worked out, a situation can come up where, you know, a social situation, maybe, you know, someone uh, doesn't understand what I said, and it can trigger that limiting belief. You know, people don't understand me, or I don't belong, or something like that. So, this is a whole deep area, and maybe we could have a whole, you know, a whole series of sessions on it, you know, because it's it's a deep area, and I I go into depth on this when I teach on transforming the judgmental mind. How many might be interested in a a series on this territory? Because it's um, it's it's important. It's it's not it's not surface level stuff. It takes time to to work with, and I'm giving a little bit shorthand for this and we, we you know when I you know when I teach it in some other context like at retreats you know we could take um, you know a day or two just exploring the territory so but do we have, do you have enough sense of what I'm getting at that there are there can be things beneath the surface all of us have some versions of them you know, that could be, I'm not good enough, I don't belong, people don't understand me, you know, there's a problem with me in some way, um, you know, um, there can be about oneself, there can be about relationships, you know, a, a child who um, has a, 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 um, a divorce happen, maybe the child's five or six years old, many children will develop the internal unconscious limiting belief, you know, this was my fault, right? And they can have a kind of limiting belief when something bad happens, it's my fault. Can you see how that might happen in that situation? And that just gets brought into, you know, brought into the child when the child is now 40 years old. I've worked with some people in their 70s who are still working with a limiting belief like that that developed when they were seven years old, right? Right? It's like that, right? I think we, we know that. So it's a big area, right? And then the, the last area is also a big area. And this is the, the, um, the way that we develop non-reactive ways of responding to situations. This is a whole large area, but it's significant. We develop ways of responding particularly the difficult situations that are non-reactive. I learned to be able to speak non-reactively increasingly. And there's a whole, again, a whole area we could develop. And I, I mentioned a few times ago that I also can, you know, try to engage 
in situations maybe involving uh, you know that you know that person who didn't keep the agreement at work. Can I deal with that situation non-reactively? Can I engage in activism and work with my reactivity and be increasingly non-reactive, not have reactivity? A few times ago, I interpreted the teachings from Gandhi and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about nonviolence and coming from other people as well, like you know Dorothy Day and so forth. Um, most recently, one of the most prominent people recently is Congress, Congressman um, John Lewis, you know, from uh, I think from Georgia, and you know the teachings about nonviolence are there has been harm done. We will respond really fully to address the harm, but we will do so non-reactively, not passing on the pain not bringing violence to violence. A very difficult and complex teaching, but I would interpret that as an important um, source of teachings for this last area of working with reactivity. How do I work, how do I, how do I act non-reactively? And speech is an important area, and, um, you know, and then studying I think studying nonviolence is also nonviolent teachings and practices is also really crucial. How to ask that question? And, and there are a lot of complexities. I just want to acknowledge that a lot of complexities and a lot of you know nuances to that. So I'm being a little bit simplistic right now uh, in all of this. But I just wanted to name that last area. So there we have it: ten ways of practicing. Carlita. Put, did you put the, uh, you know, the, the overview in the chat, right? So 10 ways of practicing. We don't have to do all of them at once. Doing one or two at a time is quite enough. But I wanted to give you that guideline. It's in the chat, and I'll put it on the, when I post the talk, I'll put it on Dharma Seed. So let's pause just for a moment, sit quietly for a minute or two, and just see what resonated with you, including what you might like to bring into your own practice and any anything you want to ask about or share So thank you very much for your your kind listening, and uh, I like to I like to ask those questions just to see who's experienced something. So anyone want to um, ask a question, request for clarification, share something about some way that you've worked with reactivity? Maybe share. You know, I I use ten because ten is a good number, but we could probably have a list of twenty or seventeen. You know. 10 is a number that has a certain history in both Western and Asian traditions. So I use 10. I actually, when I, when I did my, uh, 
I, I uh, wrote a book called The Engaged Spiritual Life um, a number of years ago, and I sent my draft to the publisher, and I had 11 chapters. And the publisher basically said, no way. We want 10. So they cut out the 11th chapter. They cut out the chapter. Interestingly, the chapter they cut out was on conflict. <laughs> it was a funny story. Anyway, uh, anyone want to ask something or share something about anything I said, about any of the ways? Or please, uh, uh, Seema, please. Okay, thank you so much, Donald. I mean, these are the teachings I think I've been waiting for my whole life. I started Buddhist practice in the late 80s, early 90s. And I have, I come from a traumatic background as a kid, quite traumatic. And I was an addict for 35 years oh. and I'm not an addict anymore. Um, and I was pretty unconscious about it. I mean, I'm smart. I go to therapy. I do all that stuff, but I couldn't figure out why it was so hard for me to hmm. feel better. And fortunately, I got into Buddhist practice um, and with some really good teachers, including you and Yvonne Rand and some other people, and started noticing things were getting better, but I didn't really understand why. Hmm. Um, and it's the mindfulness the mindfulness practice has really been helping me pinpoint, oh, I'm having a meltdown right now because of X. Yeah. What is that about? Okay, it's about self-judgment. Okay, and, you know, just learning things to do. But the reason I'm bringing it up is that I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really exhausted. This is very exhausting. Um, I'm sure it is for a lot of people. But it's really exhausting, yeah. and it takes a lot of perseverance yeah. on my part and everybody's part who does this. And I just wanted to say that out loud because this talk was just amazing. I mean, just exactly what I needed to hear mm. and um, to learn how all of that stuff about judgment. Judgment is such an intense yeah. thing in Western culture and every place maybe, but especially in Western society. And all of the things that you were talking about are really helpful. Yeah. I, I would add generosity as an anti antidote practice as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. If I can be generous to myself or generous to the other person in any even tiny little bit of a way, then that helps me feel more balanced. But yeah. thank you. It's just the constant, the repetition and the having a sangha to deal with it is amazing. Thank, thanks, Seema. And I think you brought up something that's actually really important. It's related to what I was saying about the heart practices and could kind of add generosity, which is that if we're having a lot of attention going into reactivity, um, I would add maybe uh, practice number 11, take a lot of breaks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> take yes. a lot of breaks or, you know, have periods where you kind of pull back some. And you pull back and maybe you do things which are really, really nourishing for yourself. So that, that kind of balance is really... So I think what you're, you're sharing really um, brought that up. We can really add that, you know, yes, add that thank to you. what I was saying. Thank you. Okay, looks like uh, Robert, please.
You're yeah. muted. Yeah, hello. How about that? Is that better? Can you hear me? Yeah. Awesome technology. Great. Hey, thank you. Donald, I, I had such a great couple hours. Um, you know, I had a wonderful meditation and, you know, identified with so many things that you talked about. Um, I've been in, you know, I've been in first gear of this practice for a long time. Mm. And, um, and only recently have I decided to kind of get out of first gear and, and, um, I'm going to be joining you guys in January for the five day retreat. For, for Metta. Pardon? The loving kindness retreat or? Yeah, the, 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 um, the five day retreat up in Ring County. Yeah. I believe what yeah. you're referring to is it. Yeah. So I kind of dove in and I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's so incredibly cool. Um, and I wanted to share one thing, you know, when you talked about pain in, in, in the beginning, you know, I've been a sufferer of chronic, severe chronic pain for some time in the yeah. last five years. It's been rather debilitating. Wow. Um, and my wife and I were away the last couple of weeks and, um, unfortunately, like in the middle, I just, my body just fell apart from all the travel, right? And I was in just massive levels of pain. But I decided that um, I was going to make it my challenge mm. to see if I can, um, you know, enjoy my trip with my wife in these amazing places. Even though I'm walking like an 85-year-old guy, I was determined to go to every place that I wanted to go to and see every single thing I wanted to see. It just took me longer. Yeah. But my, my goal was to do it without complaining and without feeling sorry for myself. And there were certainly those times when I did. But at the end of the day, I felt massively grateful wow. for where I was. Right. And in a way, when you talk about uh, not complaining and so forth, that's not shooting the second arrow, mm. right? There, you know, it's just, uh, you know, um, basically in ordinary English, not making things worse. They are this way and, you know, we can make it worse physically, emotionally, mentally, right? So, and so you just really said, let me enjoy this. There are some... You know, this is happening. I can't deny it, but I can really, uh, you know, maybe you weren't thinking I won't shoot the second arrow, but effectively that sounds like what you did. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Okay, have have some time if there anyone else want to ask something, and I like to encourage. Um, uh, Half-baked questions. Not every question is fully baked. And, okay. Hello, Jamal, please. Hello. Um, I've been wondering about the distinction between tanha, craving and pushing away, or aversion, and dukkha. Yeah. So, like... Tanha is the mental action of fixating on a thing in yeah. a particular way where you're grasping after the pleasant or aversioning to the unpleasant, you know, in a self-centered way. And dukkha is the state of being that ensues with being identified with that whole process. I'm just wondering if you have 
you know, like a insight onto the into the nature of dukkha, I guess. Yeah, basically. yeah. Again, some some of this, thanks, thanks, Jamal. Some of this is my own interpretation. So the interpretation I give is trying to simplify things. So we have the we have the teaching that I mentioned from dependent origination, which basically says there are these um, different steps from contact with a sense to something being pleasant or unpleasant. And then let's say after there's something pleasant, if we're not aware, there is a further step, which is typically called tanha or craving. And that uh, we haven't yet acted. So it's still wanting, you know, we use the English word craving, and then there's grasping. So I'm distinguishing the craving or the wanting from the actually grasping. So this could, you know, on the other side of that is something I, I don't like. You know, someone said something unpleasant, you know, I had an unpleasant interaction, and then I'm, uh, you know, and then there it doesn't, there are some nuances here, but let's say that I'm, um, you know, I'm having some negative thoughts. The person is still around, and that would be the not wanting. I don't, yeah, I didn't like that. I didn't want that to happen. And then I say something, and that would be the actual pushing away. Or maybe I judge myself really harshly. So there's kind of an intermediate step, which I think would fit craving before there's action. And grasping or the pushing away. And again, it doesn't totally fit, but that's a kind of action. And what I'm saying is that the, uh, the grasping or the pushing away, I'm calling that dukkha. I'm, I'm calling that reactivity and saying that that is the deeper meaning of dukkha. That's what the Buddha, when the Buddha talks about ending dukkha, that's what gets ended. The reactivity gets ended. In other words, the action. But there are these. There's an intermediate stage when we haven't quite acted, but we're kind of getting. We're pumping ourselves up or whatever. Does that get at it, uh, Jamal? Yeah, but why call it dukkha and not tanha if that's the mental action that we're trying to, you know, stop our minds from doing? Well, the what I'm saying is that the tanha is again usually translated as craving. It's more. Um, there, you know, the way I'm interpreting it, it hasn't, there isn't yet action. We want to, yeah, we want to work with the craving or the, you know, the thinking about something unpleasant. But, um, and, and often in experience, it's all meshed together. You know, something happens and bam, bam, I go right into reactivity. But I, I think we're making, I'm, I'm following the teaching of dependent origination in which there is a distinction made between sort of wanting and grasping. With wanting, we haven't yet uh, acted. And again, sometimes we don't see that distinctively. Sometimes they're all happen, bam, bam. But, but I'm making a distinction between them and saying that the reactivity is in the action. And that's, that's how I'm interpreting dukkha. And that, you know, the buildup to the action it's certainly something we want to study and look at, but it's not the same. You know, in other words, there. You know, we can have the build-up, and we still can intervene, and not act. In other words, I can notice myself wanting, 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 craving, craving, craving the fourth piece of cake, right? But if I notice the craving, then I might not. 
uh, grasp at the fourth piece of cake. Or if I notice myself um, having negative thoughts about someone before I've spoken to the person, I can notice those negative thoughts and said, I better, you know, I want to be careful and not say those thoughts out loud, not, not act in other words. So that's the distinction I'm making. Does that, does that get out of some? Yes. Are we free of reactivity when we're craving the cake? During the moments that we're craving the cake, we haven't act to grasp it. Like, are we free of reactivity in those moments? It seems like that is also suffering. Yeah, yeah I think I think you're right. We're, we're, except I'm try, I'm using reactivity in a somewhat technical term uh, or technical way here, and distinguishing the buildup to from the action, and just calling the latter reactivity. But you know, it, there could because I'm trying to follow that teaching. But in other ways of looking at it, we would kind of mesh it all together. So, you know, could call it all reactivity. But the key thing is that the, you know, the craving or the wanting is relatively unconscious, automatic, habitual, and something we want to work with. It's, you know, it's, it's generally fairly mindless. And so in, in terms of it being a problem or an issue that we want to deal with, yes, very much. And, you know... I'm trying to be a little bit, um, what, uh, precise in using the terms, but I think if we, you know, we might also use reactivity in a broader way and talk about, you know, craving as part of, part of that. Mm. Yeah. But it depends how we use the language. I'm trying to be somewhat precise and just talk about reactivity as the, um, the grasping or the pushing away. Is the craving deeply connected with it and part of the problem? Yes however we define it. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Jamal. Okay, I think we have one more. This will be the last one. And this is uh, Lisa Marie, please. There we go. Um, well, I noticed being, being excited about um, having these... Um, tools maybe yeah, you could yeah. say, to, and, and awarenesses to work with and then uh, I noticed that then there was a painful admission that was part of that like that um, self-recognition that is is hard to uh, sit with yeah yeah and so when we're focusing on reactivity thank thank you Lisa Marie I think I think what you're saying is something really true for virtually all of us, and it goes it goes back to that um, really point by Seema about the value of taking breaks. It's just that when we're actually looking closely <clears throat> at our patterns, we want really to um, you know we we want to combine that with holding ourselves with some kindness and some equanimity. That's why the heart practices really are almost a necessary complement. And sometimes we do those more. If we feel ourselves a little out of balance, looking so much at the difficult stuff, take some time to do that which is nourishing. And we need, we need to do both. And if it feels like, oh, it's getting to be a little too much, you know, um, uh, take, take a break, uh, have a period where one does something that is more 
uh, nourishing, uh, developing one's sense of uh, you know the beautiful parts of one's being. You know, so that attention to the, what's difficult or painful doesn't uh, you know doesn't become another reason to uh, be judgmental towards ourselves, which is in other in other words. It's just suggesting when we go into painful territory, like what you're calling painful admission, it actually can itself trigger the second arrow, being judgmental towards ourself. I'm, you know, I'm doing all this work with this stuff. I'm, I'm kind of messed up, aren't I? We can get hard <laughs> on ourselves, right? And so when we yes. notice that, we want to do, you know, even take some time being away from it, away from too much attention to the hard stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's beautifully consistent with other things that are going on. Thank you. And um, I, that was my half-baked question. So thank you for encouraging the half-baked question. <laughs> You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being willing to express your half-baked question. It, <laughs> to me, it didn't seem so half-baked, but maybe not to others. So let's, uh, let's close. Um, let's close in two ways. First, to bring to mind your intentions coming out of our time together. Maybe which of these practices call you? And if there's an intention for the next period, see what that is. And then we finish with the dedication of merit, knowing that the horizon of our practice is to benefit ourselves, but also to benefit others. And our horizon ultimately is to be connected with all beings. May our practice, may our time together be a benefit to ourselves, may it be a benefit to others. Ultimately, we offer the benefits of our practice, of our time together today, for the benefit of all beings, knowing that this includes us. So thank you everyone. Thank you, Carlita. Yay. Yay, Carlita. Yay. Thank and you, Donald. I'll do my I'll do my bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And you'd like to unmute. Yeah, if you want to unmute and say you. goodbye in whatever way Thank you, you like. Everyone. Thanks for all your practice. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Have a nice day. Bye -bye. Thank, Thank you, everyone. everyone. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Till next time. Indeed. Have a good week. Yeah. Thanks. Donald, we look forward to seeing you next month. I know, not for a while. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, have a good one. And um, I, I I, was reading about Yom Kippur, and they said, don't say happy Yom Kippur. I can't pronounce uh, the Hebrew version, but it said, may your fast be useful. Something, something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. 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 No, it's a it's a deep one. It's uh, mostly uh, a lot of it. 
acknowledging where one has fallen short and then um, aspiring towards the the deepest vision. Mm, and, and yes, and it was also may your name be written in the book of life. Right, right. May your name be written in the book of life. So, thank you. All right. Okay. Till next time. Till next time. Have a beautiful trip. We Thanks. look forward to seeing you in November. Thank you. All right. Best wishes. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.